Welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. We're thrilled to be back for Season 3 of Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice, a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Assistant Professor in International Development, Dr Laura Mann. Each week, renowned guest lecturers, including Harjun Chang, Rafif Siada, Branka Milanovic and Jayati Ghosh, share their expertise and spark discussion on a range of contemporary global issues in development, from the links between economics and science fiction, to how inequality is driving the climate crisis, to the impact of social media and disinformation on development. In 2020, we moved the series online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures online. This year, we moved the series back to in-person for our students and staff, but we'll continue to share the lectures with a global audience through YouTube, podcasts and blogs. I hope you enjoy the talk. So I think we're all ready to go. Um, so my name is Laura Mann and I'm an assistant, uh, assistant professor in the Department of International Development at the LSE. And it's a big pleasure and I'm very excited to introduce this panel this afternoon. Uh, I think like everybody else, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I've definitely kind of learned a lot from people online and feel like my kind of network of people who I learn from and who hold me to account for my ideas has widened. Um, I think that these platforms are very helpful for kind of capturing events and issues that the mainstream, quote-unquote, mainstream media has sometimes neglected. I think these platforms are also really useful particularly in development studies, um, in, a, in kind of countering and critiquing elite knowledge that can sometimes be quite insulated from realities on the ground, particularly if we're talking about the power asymmetry between researchers based in high income countries studying peoples and societies in low and middle income countries. So there's a kind of popular peer review potential there uh, that could be very productive and get us at more nuanced and sort of more bottom-up understandings of the true nature of development. However, I also get very frustrated by social media and particularly the kind of shiny hellscape of Twitter sometimes uh, around misinformation, polarization and manipulation, particularly around conflicts in Ethiopia, in Syria and now in Ukraine. And there's also a difference between kind of popular peer review of bad helicopter researchers and the denialism of good research. We've seen this both in terms of public health, but also in human rights situations where governments can use popular rhetoric online to try and cast doubt and discredit good quality research. So there's a double-edged sword there to that kind of popular bottom-up peer review. I also worry that digital infrastructures are kind of seen as these neural networks that are reflecting the world as it is, but there's a real patchiness and unrepresentativeness both on social media, but also on digital platforms more broadly and some of the economic platforms that I study. And so I wonder that that, what worry that that patchiness is kind of skewing our understandings of the world and kind of affecting the way that policymakers and politicians try to gauge public opinion and, and build political platforms and policies. Um, so, you know, one of the things I do in my course when I talk about digital development 
is start that discussion with a conversation around the material and physical infrastructure of the internet and the financial costs involved and the sense that it is actually based within borders and it has a geography and not everybody experiences the same internet where you are in the world shapes the degree to which you can access it and the degree to which it's regulated and what is being optimized. So while we think of these platforms as very horizontal, there's a geography and a politics to digital systems. Um, and we have to kind of understand this geography and this hierarchies to understand how it's shaping our understandings of development. So I'm really excited that we have such a stellar lineup of experts to help us understand these issues to kind of think about how we can salvage the promise of digital technologies for a more kind of deliberative and more nuanced understanding of development on the ground. So my first person I want to introduce is Nanjala Niavola, who is a writer and researcher based in Nairobi, Kenya. Her work is at the intersection of technology, media and society, and she's the author of a growing number of excellent books, including Digital Democracy, Analytics, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. And she has a new book about to come out, Strange and Difficult Times, Notes on a Global Pandemic. We are also joined by Idris Ahmed, who is the Director of Journalism at the University of Essex. He's one of the founding editors of New Lines magazines and is a contributing editor of the LA Review of Books. I think he's currently writing a book on war narratives on Syria that kind of deals with some of these issues around Syria in particular. Uh, we also have Amil Khan, who is a former Reuters foreign correspondent and a BBC investigative journalist. Uh, he was working with human rights-based groups in the Middle East when the Arab Spring broke out. And in 2020, sensing the kind of critical threat of online manipulation um, and how it was shaping uh, journalists, activists, and political movements, he founded Valent Projects with the aim of leveling the playing field and kind of understanding this infrastructure for good, I guess, in the world. And he has been working, uh, the, how I know him is through his work uh, with the transitional government in Sudan. And finally, and by no means least, we have Kecheng Fang, who is an assistant professor of journalism at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And his research interests include digital media, journalism, and political communication. So I think we have a really um, wonderful lineup of uh, experts to help us understand these issues. So the first question I want to ask the panelists is how they understand the kind of promise of these systems and these technologies for development and for making development sort of more deliberative and our understandings of development more tailored to what's happening on the ground. And I'm going to start with Manjala. Thank you, Laura. Um, I think that the best way to understand the impact that digital technologies are having on political life, and this is what I try to go into in digital democracy, is just go back to the basics. What do people use uh, public spaces for? What is the public sphere for? How is it constituted? What kind of um, interactions does it make possible and what does it constrain? I think what we've seen um, or we saw before the rise of the digital age is the rise of the ivory tower, if you will, or this sort of the concretization of the ivory tower that you had 
all these practitioners kind of talking to each other and circulating within their own conferences, exchanging um, very sort of um, inside a speak, you know, to dis to describe specific context, describe specific situations, um, sort of the, the powers being distributed in such a way that it was really tilted away from ordinary people and towards those who had it. And part of that is this uh, aspect of the public sphere, which is constituted by the ability to deliberate, right? Whoever controls the agenda, whoever controls uh, the story, whoever is able to order the story is the person who is able to order the action that happens within a society. I think the power of social networking sites is that it made it possible for ordinary people to have that agenda setting power. It made it possible for people to demand the attention of those who hold power and also of their peers sort of across the society, so vertically and horizontally. It made it possible for ordinary people to insert themselves into discourse that they were otherwise excluded from. And you find that in social networking sites, people who have power in the analog world have to meet people where they are. They have to kind of immerse themselves. Um, they have to, you know, follow the unspoken rules of social interactions. They have to learn how to use hashtags. They have to learn how to read uh, trending topics. They have to do all, they have to bring themselves to the level of ordinary people. And I think there's a certain power to this. That's the disruptive power of social networking sites. It's making it possible for ordinary people at a critical mass to exercise agenda setting power um, in the public sphere and to tell stories and to construct narratives that re reflect their own interests and their own perspectives. It's not an infinite power. It's not a power that cannot be circumscribed. It's not a power that cannot be manipulated. It's not a power that cannot be, it's not um, completely uh, insulated from broader consequences. It's a power that often runs up against, for example, what we're experiencing now with Twitter, What's the power of private capital in shaping access to those platforms? What's the power, you know, we're in a situation whereby an American founder um, has absolute power to switch off at the tap this platform that many ordinary people around the world are completely dependent on for their political social objectives. What happens to women in Iran when Elon Musk switches off Twitter? What happens to, you know, protesters um, who have become completely dependent on this as a place of getting their voices heard when the, the, the demands of the American uh, legislative, economic, financial, fiscal, whatever context make it such a way that this, the platforms can't exist anymore. There are definitely many tensions um, embedded in there. But I think specifically in the context of development and development as um, practitioner domain or whatever, I think what we had seen for a long time was this growing uh, gap between how the objectives of development are articulated, what is development for, and how ordinary people understand development, what does development mean. This um, sort of apolitical perspective of a development which actually bleeds so many of the political demands that people have of their societies and of their political systems um, was kind of ringing hollow, I think, for a lot of people. You know, they were not asking for um, uh, toothless, um, you know, agendas. They were not asking for uh, milk and toast sort of um, uh, you know, for example, if you think about what happens with the feminist agenda when it meets development discourse and it becomes this very sort of um, milky, 
uh, I call it the warm milk version of the radical demands of feminism that, you know, let's just get, you know, one more woman in the boardroom and then it will all be well and done. Whereas a lot of the feminist action is actually demanding radical transformation of the societies that people live in. And people are, are not asking for governments to come and do small meal, uh, sort of mealy mouth uh, sort of small, small projects, but they're actually asking for radical transformations of their social and economic political systems. And I think what this ability to set the agenda has done in a lot of countries, it's allowed people to push for more radical interpretations of what development is supposed to mean. We're no longer just merely accepting the World Bank, IMF um, interpretations of development, this uh, sort of um, even the good governance agenda, I think, had kind of been pushed off the front page. Now it was just like, let's just build a couple of bridges and 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 say that we've done something good. But I think we're seeing a lot more radical demands being articulated that justice is back on the agenda and uh, equality is back on the agenda and addressing inequality as a root cause. You saw this in the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, this is the radical demand was not that. Um, that rich countries, and I say rich countries are not Western countries, but rich countries would make vaccines available to poor countries when they were ready. The radical demand was for equality from the beginning. And that demand, you know, being articulated to power in very clear terms in ways that is not couched in diplomatic speak, it's not couched in insider speak, it's not couched in technical speak, being able to build a critical mass of people online making that demand, having that knock-on impact on you know power holders and forcing people to be transparent and to be accountable about how vaccines are being demanded i think there is where you start to really see that uh it shapes the agenda it makes it possible for ordinary people to insert themselves into the agenda setting in the development discourse and i think we've seen a lot of significant transformations because of that I, I would end by saying, once again, reinforcing, it's not a perfect system. It's not a system that is beyond influence and it's not beyond manipulation. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Nandala. That was wonderful to start us off. I want to now bring in Idris, if that's okay, and sort of ask you to, to give your opinion about this. What, how do you see the potential of social media for nuancing our understandings of development? And you're on mute. <laughs> yeah, so just to uh, add to what Nanjula was saying, there's, uh, um, we, you know, we, we start, I think there has been um, shifts in the dynamic over the years. Um, we started when social media came along with this uh, sense of uh, immense understanding of that emancipatory potential. There was this leveling of uh, the power and people had more of a capacity to articulate their demands and also to challenge these uh, the prevailing idea of what development is supposed to be. And uh, over time, that had an impact. Uh, some of the way, kind of on a way uh, grassroots level, there were um, all these initiatives about bringing more transparency to how uh, funds were spent, development funds were spent about uh, monitoring corruption, monitoring activities of the police or any other uh, element of society. And uh, what happened over time is that some of those things are still very important. Like, uh, you know, I think that uh, in many respects, many of these state bodies are far more accountable than they used to be. But what has happened is that on the political level, there has been this attempt to create synthetic activity, which uh, which um, kind of, um, um, it's 
tries to, um, it simulates what public demand looks like and it tries to neutralize what is the genuine or authentic public demand. And I think that that's where the, um, the darker side of technology comes in. So over the years, people in power, they learned that the way to neutralize demands which are inconvenient to them was to create these types of uh, synthetic activity to, to challenge that. And uh, in my case, because I monitor conflicts, that became quite um, clear that for at the beginning, you know, one of many of these revolutions that started at the beginning of the last decade came out of this ability to um, articulate your demands, to form communities around them, and to mobilize public opinion around them. And But over time, again, the people in power, they started realizing that this, those same tools can be also used for, uh, for surveillance, for um, monitoring the activities of who's, and also neutralizing these activities. So I think in that respect, um, uh, we have seen over time things change and probably we are in the most uh, uh, dangerous phase right now uh, because one of the positive things that happened because of the experience of 2016 onwards and greater awareness of disinformation, misinformation, and how they were undercutting this emancipatory potential of these tools was that uh, eventually, around 2018 onwards, many of these social media companies started taking action to curb uh, these type of activities, started labeling um, disinformation and started also um, taking actions against any uh, synthetic accounts, bot networks and all. But uh, right now, as we are seeing that all of that is being eroded. So um, again, once we are, we are in, a, in that uh, place where it will become a feel of struggle again that how I mean, we don't know how this is, thing is going to turn out at the moment twitter which i think was because of its immediacy was the most important tool in this respect has been uh, undermined by um, the developments of the past month and so it remains to be seen you know what we can extract out of it i mean one of the things that came out of our experience of the past decade was i think ukraine has fared so much better because there was a greater awareness of how these tools can be used and uh, information as the power potential of information. And I think that uh, Ukraine has been very successful in mobilizing public support and getting um, or even uh, establishing the legitimacy of its, uh, its fight. And I think that that's, you know, it's not what applies in conflicts in, uh, um, is very similar to what happens in society in general. So I think that well, we are seeing um, we had seen gains which are currently being eroded, and that's why we are back in the fight. So we will have to see over time that how we counter this new danger that is being posed. Okay, thank you very much. I want to bring in Kajang here now because we've been talking a lot about kind of US platforms, and I and you are in a sort of enviable position to be looking at this both in terms of discussions of China on US platforms, but also looking at Chinese platforms. So could you sort of give us that perspective? Sure, sure. Yeah, as we all know, the Chinese context is very, very different. But I, I should emphasize that China is not totally isolated from the world. So both uh, uh, Nanjala and uh, Idris mentioned Twitter, for example. We are also worried about Twitter. Uh, because, for example, a recent example is last weekend, there was a wave of quite surprising protest against the COVID uh, zero policy in China. I guess many of you have seen the news. And actually during the protest, Twitter uh, served as a good tool for archival purposes because you mean all those photos, short videos, you could take that, you could try to post that on 
Weibo and WeChat Chinese platform, but they will soon be deleted. So many posted that on Twitter and Twitter became a good archival uh, tool. And people go to Twitter and then download again and uh, post it again on Weibo and delete it. And people go to Twitter again, right? So uh, Elon Musk is um, doing something with Twitter and we fear that if Twitter is going to <laughs> diminish, then we should find, we have to find another uh, archival tool. So um, that's that's one thing I, I want to say. But of course, uh, in, in China, most important, uh, most people are uh, daily uh, engagement is with uh, domestic platforms. So about the positive and negative consequences of those platforms, I want to use three examples. One good one, one bad one, and one mixed example. The good example is in terms of economic development. I think we are, when we talk about development, it's not only political development, right? So a good example is, for example, uh, we all know TikTok is popular all around the world, right? Its major competitor in China is called Kuai, Kuai Kuai. And so uh, uh, one thing that Kuai and uh, Do, uh, TikTok, the Chinese version Douyin, were doing is to do help farmers to do live streaming, live e-commerce streaming, to sell the products, which are maybe unsellable agricultural products, apples, oranges, vegetables, like that. So, I mean, I mean, during previous years, of, I mean, China has been uh, all less in, in the lockdown mode. So the market is not in full operation. So there's a lack of market information. It's very difficult for farmers to sell the products. There may be low awareness of good products in distant rural areas and there's insufficient promotion of those products. So the farmers are actually using these short video platforms to do uh, live streaming and people can just, when watching the live video, they can just buy purchase those uh, uh, agricultural products, which really helped a lot uh, with farmers' lives. So I think this is a great example of how social media platform uh, can do good for development. But of course, this happened in China and promoted uh, by platforms and government because it is in line with government policy. It is definitely in line with one of the major policies of the current Chinese administration, which is poverty alleviation. So this contributes a lot to, to this major policy of Xi Jinping. So that has been promoted. So that's a good example. That's in line with uh, uh, government. The bad example, of course, is surveillance, right? And as we know that in China, people have to scan their health code everywhere. Uh, uh, so health code is not only for health. So people fear that, but it also actually happened. So in this June, in a uh, city called Zhengzhou in, 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 in China, uh, one local bank in, in that city actually tried to turn many uh, savers, the account holders, health code into red so that those people cannot travel. They cannot travel because they want to travel because suddenly uh, people found that they cannot uh, 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 draw, withdraw money from their accounts. So the bank was in uh, a problem. And uh, so many people want to go to, wanted to go to Zhengzhou and uh, to protest to get the money back. But uh, the local government and local bank collaborated in turning the health code to red, so they cannot travel. So that's a bad example of how China is building this surveillance state and platform companies definitely helping the government to do that. And one mixed example is uh, so-called public op opinion monitoring. 
So collecting public opinion is good, right? The government ha has to listen to the people, right? Or even though China is authoritarian government, people, uh, political scientists theory Chinese government as responsive uh, uh, authoritarianism, meaning that China's Chinese government still has to re uh, listen to uh, uh, the citizens, to, to the people. And uh, so they are collecting, they spend a lot of money collecting what people have been saying online, right? So this is a good thing. But I say it's mixed because usually the result is that local governments spend a lot of money uh, collecting information, collect uh, social media posts, and they will ask uh, the platform to delete those unfavorable posts, those posts that criticizing the government. So it's yeah, so it's listening to people, but also trying to silence people, right? So I think in terms of public opinion, uh, opinion monitoring, it's really a mixed uh, result here. But I think from these three uh, examples in China, we could really say that in maybe in authoritarian regimes, especially in China, uh, uh, whether social media can do good or do bad, really uh, uh, to a large uh, extent, it depends on what the government wants to do and also how the platforms are collaborating with the government. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is kind of where I wanted to take the conversation next is this issue of kind of how these platforms, you know, I think technology companies like us to think that any kind of change is inevitable, that it's driven by the technology, but it is often driven by the kind of curation and the rules that are kind of embedded into these systems and the way that these systems are companies often or sometimes governments with sort of certain interests, right? And they're sort of building incentive structures in order to optimize and maximize things. Um, so I think this issue of optimization and thinking about what is being optimized and how we can kind of reshape optimization for more developmental ends is, is an interesting way of getting at this. And I wanted to bring in Amir here to talk a little bit about how he understands what is being optimized on these platforms how he thinks it's changing what's being optimized um, and whether he has any kind of hope of a better, more progressive kind of optimization being possible. Thanks very much, Laura. That's a really interesting uh, question, particularly the issue of, is there hope for uh, an optimization that's more progressive or better? Um, I think in short, the, the answer is um, that as private companies uh, the platforms are optimized to maximize profit for shareholders, without a doubt. And I remember um, uh, around January 6th, where we saw the um, the insurrection, to use the popular used phrase in the US uh, after the last election, um, one of the founders on Reddit said, of course, you know, the reason why, and he's no longer uh, a Reddit, but he, he was talking about how the internal thinking works in the within the decision making group in these platforms he says you have to remember that platform's number one priority is the continued survival of the platform so that's the first thing they have to do and the reason why um at the time twitter decided to remove trump despite all of the other um uh, violations that he'd done of their terms and conditions and why they decided to remove him in january 6th was because his actions made them think that he actually threatened the platform. He threatened the entire sort of setup of the economy. You know, if if, if the interaction had happened, nobody knows what would, what what America would look like after that. Um, in which case, 
the survival of the platform, the survival of the dynamics that allows it to exist um, legally, financially, would be threatened. So they, it was just a survival issue. They just got rid of him. Um, the, of course, the fact that these rules impact our very real world, these kind of um, sort of virtual rules almost in a, in a virtual world, is has been clear from the time of the Arab Spring, at least when I worked on it. Um, the promise to slightly re reflect on the first question was that um, the dynamics of power had changed. Um, and Angela um, has spoken about that really, really, um, really simply there. And I think what the promise was beyond that was that um, we could change the uh, the, the decision makers um, calculations. So if before the decision makers were people who just sat at the top and talked to other decision makers in those ivory towers and Angela that, um, uh, mentioned that somehow popular dissatisfaction or popular demand would change all of that. And I think um, a lot of people have written about this and mentioned that that was only possible around the time of the Arab Spring because of the technical way in which the platforms worked at the time, which then changed after 2015. So one very um, uh, obvious example, although there are others, was that um, uh, at the time, both uh, Facebook particularly and the others, they were much more chronological in the way that they worked. And the, 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 the way the algorithm prioritized content was much more based on what, what came up and then what got attention. And then the algorithms became a lot more sort of, uh, they became harder to, harder to fathom the factors that they were um, prioritizing in order to push uh, different types of content on your feed. But that's not to say that they were a completely closed box. So if you look online, you look on uh, YouTube and you look up um, videos to maximize reach. There's an entire cottage industry of people all over the world who will tell you uh, that you should put a sense of jeopardy in the first three seconds of your video or that you should use yellow and not red. And this is based on people doing A-B testing, you know, essentially. So they look at what works, what exactly works, how do we game the algorithm? Because if there is an algorithm, if there is a system, then we have ways of gaming it. And again, and this is the key thing that I want to refer to, the driving factor there is money. So the kind of people who are figuring out how to game algorithms is not the development sector or even really governments or um, the private sector, you know, on a sort of like huge corporates. It's um, young, mostly men, sometimes women sitting all over the world and a lot of the time in lower income countries trying to figure out how they can make money by doing by servicing people who do drop shipping, selling trainers, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, while bypassing the sort of often broken systems in their own country. Once they do, and once they figure it out, those, those learnings seep over into politics. And you mentioned that we'd been working in Sudan, that I worked in Sudan. We see maybe a group of 100, 200 people in, in Khartoum who are able to do this, who learn about this, who go online, find the forums, experiment on it, use it to make themselves you know, a modest income often. And then somebody will turn up and say, hey, would you mind doing this for, do you want to do, we can employ you, we can pay you three or $400 a month. And then suddenly there's a new industry there servicing political actors. So what can uh, platforms do about this? I would say first and foremost, 
uh, let's start with the legislators. The legislators have to understand that this is a financial issue. Um, and often the driving factor here is finance, whether it's on the you know micro level of an individual trying to earn money or um, the platforms themselves or all the, all the middlemen in between. So there, there's no point um, asking a platforms to come up with terms and conditions around hate speech, et cetera, if we don't also then look at the, the, the incentivization around it. And there's some uh, very good work done by uh, uh, quite a few writers on this issue. And the, 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 the even specific um, demands are there. Like we know what kind of things that these guys should do. The question is whether or not the political will is there um, because there are also a lot of other dynamics in play around, you know, the sort of traditional uh, interplay between power, money, and politics. So I think what we have to do there is 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 look where the money is. And the key example I'd end with is to think about um, the Alex Jones trial, which I'm sure a lot of people looked at, where where he, um, where people that he had defamed were awarded, I think, there are multiple hundreds of millions of pounds of dollars. Um, uh, the coverage talked about it, it drew attention to the idea of the um, um, lucrative lying. And when we talk about um, the manipulation of social media, which Nanja touched on just uh, towards the end of um, uh, the point where she, she was making, we have to look at how bad information or just straight out lies and manipulation can earn people money um, and attack it at that point. Thank you very much, Amir. I don't know. I just want to throw this open to the other um, the other panelists if they want to respond to that. Um, just to add an, add a dimension um, to what Emil was talking about, the other piece there's a, a really fantastic essay that um, went around a couple of months ago, and the title has kind of stayed with me, and it was called um, "Lies: the, the Truth Is Expensive and the Lies Are Free." Because obviously the other part of this dimension is the impact that it has in the misinformation economy and, and how a lot of this stuff is, the, the initial inter interest is not in spreading COVID misinformation, it's not in influencing political behavior, it's not in anything that grandiose, these people are just literally trying to make um, ends meet. And I think part of it is this failure to understand that um, all of this stuff is operating within an ecosystem. We tend to look at social, we have historically looked at social networking sites. It's kind of like a niche thing that all of these young people are doing and it doesn't have any connection. And by the time sort of mainstream political um, systems kind of woke up to the to what was happening with social networking sites, many of these underlying structures were already in place. Let me talk about... Um, uh, you know, narratives, how narratives get sh shaped and, and, you know, transmitted around, across social media, people learning how to game algorithms um, in very simple, very simple, very banal ways, and then sort of turning that, the people who turn that into sort of political action, it's often very interesting um, surprising characters that people haven't really been paying attention to in other contexts. I, I think about, for example, the examples that I have in the book where I talk about um, many of the patterns that we see between young men, you know, disgruntled young men um, going from being angry at women, then going into becoming low-level political operatives and building these massive uh, digital uh, systems where they are able to influence discourse online. 
actually replicates across so many geographies, it's actually fascinating because we saw it in Kenya as well, we've seen it in the United States, we're seeing it in many countries in Europe, we're seeing it in many countries in Asia. And that pattern is really to go to Emil's point about how the initial impetus probably has nothing to do with politics, but what the politicians have that these uh, networks want is money. And what the politicians have is this desire to influence that discourse and being able to put money towards it. And the last piece of that then becomes, well, we talk about what do we do about it? There has to be a political interest in doing something about it. And I think in many countries, this is the piece that's missing because many of the people who should be creating the legislation, should be creating the policy context that speaks to these issues are benefiting from these issues. You know, the biggest users, there was uh, before these changes that happened in 2000 and, uh, 2020, 2019, I think, uh, pandemic timelines are a mess. I think it was 2019. Um, some of the biggest users of these um, astroturfing, these sort of mass tweeting uh, of activists, of, um, you know, on Instagram, whatever, it was governments, right? If they wanted to silence you on the Ethiopian war, you know, all you had to do was say something about Ethiopian, you would get 200 of the same uh, comments, you know, to make Twitter unusable for journalists, to make it unusable for activists. Um, there are several African governments that have used this tactic repeatedly with, with uh, activists. There are several Western governments, not Western governments, but there are several governments in Europe, for example, that have used this, uh, you know, Hungary, used this tactic against um, uh, activists and, and journalists and critics of the state. And so I think part of it is in the absence, it, there's contexts in which there is legislative will and there is legislative uh, policy will to create um, a sort of, um, to address this issue. But for many parts of the world, there isn't a legislative will because the people who run the legislatures are the people who are benefiting from this issue. And I think this is a regulatory knot that also needs to be entangled. And for the moment, it seems that people will increasingly be dependent on the American legislature and the American policymaking space um, or the Chinese policymaking space, if we're talking about TikTok, if we're talking about uh, Weibo and all of these other platforms, um, and, and lately the European policymaking space. Because it looks like, for example, if there's going to be any action on uh, what's happening on Twitter, it's going to come from Brussels. It's not going to come from DC. Um, and I think, as a law nerd, I find it very fascinating because it's a new frontier of, of international rulemaking. I think in practical terms, there's a power shift that's happened um, specifically that has specifically left uh, activists, journalists, uh, opposition candidates in the global South and in poor countries, particularly vulnerable and dependent on policy actions being taken in uh, contexts where they have no power and where they have no voice uh, to impact how they're gonna be able to do their activism, to do their protesting, to do their uh, organizing. Thank you very much, Sanjala. That was very useful. And I, I want to bring in Kacheng here because when we kind of, particularly if we're thinking about African countries, you know, there's US platforms, but there's also increasingly Chinese platforms who are kind of investing also in infrastructure in terms of the internet and mobile phones. So I wanted to ask if you think the same things are being optimized on these Chinese platforms as being optimized on US-based platforms, and whether you think that the, the same dynamics that Manjala was talking about, about citizens in low and middle income countries kind of being dependent on US and European legislators, 
also exist in terms of the kind of dynamics with Chinese platforms? Mm -hmm. Of course, there are similarities and differences. I think the uh, underlying logic, uh, um, uh, Amil just mentioned money, is, is actually the same thing, uh, important for Chinese uh, platforms. So, for example, uh, um, uh, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of nationalistic content on Chinese social media platforms, but actually they're not pro, uh, produced by uh, the China uh, Chinese government's propaganda machine. They're produced by private companies who, who really want to gain traffic, gain advertising revenue, because they know that on social media platforms, those nationalistic content, because they are more emotional, because they're about identity, so they're more easily uh, go viral. So they can uh, gain a lot. So it's not necessarily those private companies, the, the, the bosses are really that patriotic or nationalistic. It's simply because they want to uh, make money. And they, this all uh, even have an international transnational dimension. So uh, a few years ago, I, I, I published an article about uh, how the kind of alt-right uh, disinformation and conspiracy theories were actually imported by some uh, opinion leaders on, on Weibo uh, to, to the Chinese context. So there's a lot of disinformation circulating on Chinese platforms about, for example, how immigrants, refugees uh, in, Euro in European countries are kind of basically rapists. Those kind of disinformation are rampant on Chinese social media. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of, uh, of those disinformation just because uh, those social media accounts are driven by the same economic incentive to publish those kind of information. So I guess the one uh, uh, Laura asked, uh, what has been optimized on social media platforms? So I think we can uh, uh, go back to, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, what he mentioned, he argued when he firstly uh, 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 founded Facebook, he was saying, he really wanted to connect the whole world. So I think what has been optimized is this kind of connection, especially two kinds of connection, human to human connection and human to information connection, right? Human to human, this kind of connection can do good, just like uh, the live streaming e-commerce example, uh, like I, I just mentioned, you can connect uh, customers and uh, sellers who were not connected before, but, uh, you can also connect, for example, trolls, right? Trolls with journalists, right? And then that uh, could uh, uh, po uh, pose a lot of threats to uh, journalistic safety, right? So there's so, so, so there's good things and bad things in this kind of connection. And also human to information connection, of course, you can connect uh, high quality educational content with people in, 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 in rural areas like that. But of course, more, more often we see is uh, misinformation, sensationalism, and this kind of emotional information, uh, just uh, like uh, Najala mentioned, the angry people, right? Why everyone's so angry online? Because uh, it really facilitates this kind of uh, emotional uh, information to circulate among people. So a lot of, um, so politicians and uh, private companies, they really have a lot to gain if they take advantage of this optimized connection. So, um, so I think for us, if we want to really to uh, uh, improve the situation, one thing that we should think of is that uh, we want another kind of uh, uh, optimized social media, which 
emphasizes on inclusion, but also emphasizes on safety, right? So maybe we want some controlled connection between humans and between human information. But the problem is usually this kind of model is not the best for business. So I think the ultimate thing is that like how to make a good business model, which is inclusive, safe, and can make profit. So I think that's one thing that's really uh, about the future of uh, how, uh, how and whether a social media platform can evolve into a direction that is more optimized for uh, social good. So I'm glad that you left it on kind of thinking about the, the potential for other kinds of optimization. I don't know if this is too hard a question to ask HS, but whether, you know, what would he like to see optimized, for example, on Twitter? And does he have any sense of how we can get to a kind of better kind of optimization? And you're on mute, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, we're seeing a kind of optimization on Twitter happen right now, which has actually obviously worsened things because uh, the curation that is happening right now is very ideological. So uh, because uh, uh, Elon Musk's claim is that he's going to rectify this, what he says is this kind of an overly woke version of Twitter by giving more voice to right-wing voices. So now at the top, you have this star kind of a thing, which you can click to make it either chronological or uh, something that is more according to his uh, political wishes. Um, I think we have to, you know, go to the, when, when we look at the fundamentals of what is being sold at uh, on these platforms, it's basically, you know, the competition is for attention, that all these platforms are competing for attention. That is what they're monetizing. And uh, the thing is, until, which doesn't seem likely that we come up with our own networks, which have a different model. So we will have to, in a sense, either adopt our messaging to that. Uh, probably a good example of that was what John Fetterman did during the last election, that he was really successful in grabbing attention because what, what the social media companies, their optimization has been all about, finding out what retains attention. And obviously emotive messages and conflict retains attention. That is one of the reasons why we have had, to, you know, these platforms have become such a place for polarization. And um, so in a sense, what happened is that uh, um, the messaging mostly was dominated by these angry voices. And uh, what somebody like uh, John Fetterman did was something very creative, that he created messaging which resonated, but it also cut through this uh, um, generally the, this general inability. Sometimes we, we think that because somebody has got a, um, a good argument or a worthy cause, that that will in itself be sufficient for gaining an audience. And it doesn't happen. But most of the time, it just doesn't happen. So that's why we will also, understanding the optimization becomes a necessity for anybody who wants to play the political game. And uh, whether that's, you know, in the case of wanting a bridge across this, the river that has been, uh, you know, just flooded, or whether it's kind of a, asking for in Pakistan, for example, one of the things which has been quite successful is in Pakistan, deforestation was a major issue that at its birth, Pakistan had over 33% forest cover, and now it's reduced to nearly 1%. So that 
only became an issue because people started posting videos and all of this type of activity, the deforestation, which in the past was just happening in the quiet. So, and that became an issue. So right now, environment, because in the past, as Nanjala was mentioning, that these used to be ivory tower issues. In Pakistan, many people used to feel that this is not something that impacts them on a daily basis. But now everybody has that sense and everybody's making that, those connections. And a lot of the spread of these um, videos and all through social media has been, and anger is sometimes has been an important resource that people are getting angry about these things. And because of that, people have, are able to act. So that is something that we obviously have, uh, you know, because one of the things, um, advantage that people had was that uh, even like take the Arab Spring and uh, other examples or in China, the people had numbers, but it was just a matter how to turn it into a political politically potent force. And that's why the synthetic activities started, the bot networks and everything started that people were trying to neutralize that. And um, it will just be that if we are able to improve messaging or generally civil society when they're um, acting on any kind of a worthy cause, if the messaging is conscious of how these things are optimized and how attention is being sort of uh, robbed. So then it will be possible to turn any kind of uh, um, these uh, political energies into something positive. So what I'm getting from that is that you can't really take for granted the kind of transformative, transformative potential of these things. People have to be very proactive, very savvy, and very canny about using these. Um, before we open up to questions, I just want to ask all of the panelists Thinking about that, the kind of canniness, um, I want to ask them, what is it, you know, we, in the audience, we have lots of students and researchers who are interested in these issues, but also maybe activists and, you know, what do you think are the, are the sort of ways forward, either in terms of researching the kind of mechanisms of these platforms and how to use them in progressive strategic ways, or from an activist point of view, like, what can people do to try to better understand these dynamics and be proactive about pushing them for more developmental purposes? I don't know who, if anybody wants to take that. Amir, though, okay. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a lot of things that people can, can, can look at, but the issue is sometimes that um, they don't actually fit together uh, in, a, in a traditional sense. So two things come to mind. If you want to research uh, how this stuff works and how you can use it better and to pick up on Adresa's point of how do we make better content, one sort of underlying issue to, to look at and which you can research in a, in a traditional format is the gray economy of social media. So microtrends, I just got this report up here because I was looking at it, did a report recently that said if you want, you can spend £2,600 sorry, dollars and buy a social media account full of uh, that has 300,000 followers. So somebody's curated that. This is a gray economy. It's really difficult. There's no real research out there on how this works. But I know that if you were, you know, a, an actor with nefarious intentions, you could go to pretty much any country in the world and find people who will sell you these accounts, rent you these accounts. You can definitely do it in Syria. If there's no ads in the country you're in, such as Sudan and Syria, where there's sanctions, there will be people who've spent months, years building accounts that have hundreds of thousands of followers and will come to you and say, yeah, if you give me, you know, a uh, hundred thousand you know, whatever dollars a year uh, for three hours a day, I will I will promote your 
uh, political party. The rest of the time, I'll probably spend it promoting dodgy Bitcoin, uh, you know, or airdrops on dodgy cryptocurrencies. But there's an economy there, and we don't really know how that economy works. The second thing is social media strategy, which doesn't actually fit in a, in a traditional um, sort of academic co context right now. If you want to learn about that stuff, you're probably going to delve deep into YouTube videos to find out exactly how you edit a video. Exactly. There's some good work by people like Thomas Coombs, for example, who used to be at Amnesty, who looks at narratives, um, who looks at things like uh, whether or not um, um, to pick up on Luis's point, on in social media, yes, anger, shock, all these things drive attention. But there are more powerful human emotions as well out there, harder to hit, but you know more powerful if you get them to work, such as striving for a greater cause, achievement against the odds. You know the kind of things that turn up in John Lewis ads. You know that actually the world of advertising can be very good at once it puts its mind to it. So how do we make content that works and how do development agencies, so development agencies in my um, experience normally uh, are the biggest um, believers in the idea that you put content out there, as you mentioned, and it automatically is good content. It's true, not necessarily good, it's just true. And therefore it's just, you put it on a website and it goes viral. It must do because it's true. And that's just not, you know, as we know, as you said, that's not the case. How do you take that content further? How do you translate that content? And I think that links back into the first question of what is the transformative promise of social media? It is that, and we haven't really, I don't, we haven't really explored it. We haven't really used it. I was on a podcast a couple of years ago where somebody said, I'm fascinated and actually obsessed with the idea that if bad information can be uh, presented in particular ways that it goes viral on social media, what does it look like when we do good information? And no one's answered that. You know, we we sort of have a go at that here, um, but it's not something that we ask get asked by clients about a lot either. So the demand is not there at the moment. Thank you. Angela, did you want to add something? I mean, there, there, there are groups that have figured out that model. Upworthy is an example of this. Upworthy, Maria Popova, um, she's figured out that uh, quite well. Letters of note, um, uh, the Dodo, which only does animal content. There are definitely groups that have figured out how to get positive um, information out there. I think the big puzzle is that what development organizations do badly, sorry, is they're not authentic. There's the lack of authenticity. And the thing that makes social networking so vital for many people is that they're having what they experience as authentic connections with strangers, with people who are similarly aligned um, in their worldview, with people who are similarly aligned in their interests. And they're not, the content that goes viral, positive content that goes viral is the one that feels least like you're being marketed to. Um, there's been a lot of critique lately, for example, of UNHCR. UNHCR has invested a great deal of money into uh, their social networking, into their messaging, and people just feel that it's inauthentic. Why are you trying to package other people's uh, lives, misery, for my consumption? There's a, a hollowness there that I think people uh, don't respond to. So I think that the, the real challenge for development, developing development organizations is to find a way of being authentic in, in an inauthentic, <laughs> because social media is ultimately an inauthentic space. So how do you maintain authenticity in an inauthentic space? I think is a puzzle that, that needs to be resolved. It's not just for development organizations, I think for all organizations. There are diplomats, for example, who are fantastic at social media because they know 
when to tweet about uh, geopolitics and when to tweet about football, when to be, you know, uh, here's what I had for lunch and when to be, if you don't, if we don't get XYZ concession, we're going to renegotiate our trade agreements. And I think there are others who their feeds are just haranguing, like just like shrill and, you know, people will switch off because there's a certain uh, inauthenticity to that. And I think it's finding that authentic voice, regardless of what that voice is, that I think is a big puzzle. But I, I would take a step back and this is a, a bigger question that I think we're going to have to answer in the next couple of months, maybe even. Um, ultimately, social networking platforms are private spaces. They are owned by someone. They are, users are not the customers for social networking sites. Advertisers are the customers for social networking sites. One of the challenges that Facebook has, for example, I think at the last survey is that Facebook has 3.2 billion accounts all over the world. Many of us have curated because of the way the algorithms are set up, because the algorithms train us and we train ourselves to operate within the worlds that the algorithms make possible. And one of the things that's come with very intense curation is that many of us are only experiencing a small part of what is ultimately a very large uh, network of people. A big number of the accounts that exists on these platforms are people who are doing terrible things. A big number of the traffic and, and a lot of the sites, YouTube is very good at um, looking the other way and, and being over and being appearing, giving the appearance of ineffectivity in the face of um, the way in which the algorithm has been repeatedly optimized for pornography, for um, violence against children, for all kinds of gore, for all kinds of things that would not pass muster. And unfortunately, as we've heard, the people who are really good at monetizing uh, these social networking sites are the people who operate on this sort of dark web, on this darker side of all of these uh, platforms. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to reconcile is that the private capital that makes social networking possible can, is cannot indefinitely co coexist with the dark um, matter, if you will, that constitutes a huge part of what these platforms, what drives traffic on these platforms. And I think as the guardrails start to fall off, because one of the major investments that, for example, Twitter had made in having a public policy team and having a human rights team and all of this was to trying to start to address these things to incubate this uh, public policy sort of, we are actually going to rise to the occasion that our uh, users are demanding, that our users are, are inviting us to. And when those guardrails fall off, it creates opportunity for all of these people who are operating on the darker side of the web. It's 4chan, it's 8chan, it's even many, many parts of Reddit until Reddit had like that internal um, uh, cleanup. So I think, what we're entering into a space, and this is a question that has been on the minds of anybody who's been looking at the regulatory side of social networking. One, is a public interest first version of social networking possible? Is it possible for there to be a version of social networking that is uh, publicly funded, 
that is owned by the users. Maybe it's a co-op model that's owned by the users, not subscribers, but users, where the profits and the risks are distributed. You know, we've had listservs for many years and they worked really well. We had, um, you know, all other kinds of, this wave of privatization is a process that happened in the late 1990s, early 2000s with the MySpace acquisition kind of shifting us away from the MySpace kind of, uh, everybody's kind of building their own little version to centralized authority, centralized profit-making, centralized um, extraction. So is there, in thinking about alternatives and in thinking about positive ways of using social network, I think a more fundamental question is the question of ownership. Is a public interest, public owned version of social networking possible? And is, if so, what do we learn from the experiences of this hyper-privatized, this hyper-profiteering model that we can then graft into that space so that we're incubating the good and we're addressing this very huge chunk of these platforms that isn't about positive stories, that isn't about, you know, there are, there's a, accounts, sorry, but there's, a, a, there's accounts in a Mexican Facebook, I think, where there are 50,000, 100,000 people who are in these groups just to watch people post videos of men putting cameras under women's skirts. Like that's also social networking that needs to be addressed in a way that, you know, protects people and keeps people safe and keeps women safe and doesn't drive that traffic. So these are more, I think, fundamental questions um, that we kind of, those of us who are in the positive policy space, we often tiptoe around, um, but I think we have to sit with that. How do we incubate the good while addressing the bad? Yeah, I think there's always this problem of scaling up things, right? That I all of my research with digital tech people, at the beginning, people kind of thought things just went viral. But often you have these companies that actually invest and roll things out and build these physical networks and they have the money to do that. And so I want I, you know, I worry that a public interest kind of platform doesn't have that capital to do that kind of outreach. Absolutely. Building. Absolutely. The, the financial side of these things is really important. Okay, I definitely want to open up to questions from the audience. Um, so you can either put up your hand or you can post your question in the chat. And again, if you could sort of give an introduction to yourself uh, while I'm waiting for questions. And please don't be shy or don't be intimidated by our speakers. They're, they're very knowledgeable, but they're also very nice people. So please do ask them questions. Um, but as we're waiting for questions, I might ask Chang and Idris if they could talk about it, sort of areas of uncertainty or areas where we need research and we need people to kind of think about these things in a proactive, strategic way. Or, or you know, just curiosity-based, what do we not understand about these systems? Probably one of the one of the things will be the old debate about uh, um, you know should states be in a position to regulate all of this because uh, then obviously every state has very different um, motivation in regulating and some are more democratic democratic than others. So um, the idea of a public interest social network, you know, if that can materialize sometime in the future, obviously that that is a real benefit. But I think there's also a, one danger of the because sometimes what we do is that we see. Um, um, I saw one of the questions uh, in the uh, by Sheldon, I think was had posted, was about um, um, 
that sometimes we also um, have to be mindful of the continuities because you know many of the debates that uh, uh, social media has kind of highlighted are also uh, were also issues back then. I mean, to, just to take uh, Nanjala's last example about like you know these uh, websites about. Uh, people pointing cameras up uh, uh, women's skirts. So that used to be very much like a, I don't know, Daily Mail sidebar doesn't look much of an improvement on that. You know, the, they call it the sidebar of shame. I mean, it's, it's pretty much kind of the same activity, except it's on a, you know, on a legitimate newspaper. So some of these things are just social media has kind of, a, what it has done is just the fetters have been removed, but they were tendencies which existed. And uh, same thing with uh, the messaging. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I agree with uh, Sheldon's point there that uh, messaging used to be an issue even in the past with the mainstream media. In fact, it used to be a bigger challenge because um, um, media was the ivory tower. So it used to regulate, in fact, your only option if the media somehow bungled some story would be that you could write a letter to the editor and uh, which never had the same impact as we what we are able to do now, which is to challenge big publications right away if they misreport some story. So we have obviously gained a lot in that respect. It is just the fact that uh, we understand that because of the way it's uh, structured, these current social media, because of its profit motive, that it is never going to have the public interest as you know its priority. It is just a question that if we can somehow make it so, and I, uh, again, Nanjala made a very important point about that uh, inauthenticity of these big kind of uh, sometimes humanitarian, sometimes development organization that when they put out their messaging, I think what probably their logic is that if a lot of them are celebrity based, that if they can get somebody who already has a huge audience, that if they can get them to speak your message. But the thing is that that in, all, in itself, if it's a famous actor, maybe I like their films, but I'm not there kind of, I don't want to learn about, you know, what's happening in Yemen or what's happening in some other part from this person. I would rather learn from somebody that who can actually um, get me to give me something that is, whose expertise gives them some authority to speak on a subject. Or sometimes if it's a good message, like Save the Children has done some really outstanding um, ads. And that's just because they were able to, Put across that message in a way that resonated and in a sense it did do the same thing that it played with people's emotions but the thing was it was a way of bypassing that layer of apathy so it's just i think a question of um over time the public interest is something that we will need to insert into it as it was on many occasions that in a sense like the universe, social media is kind of indifferent to our good and bad that it, it'll be a question of it'll be a fight for us that how much good we can insert into it. And so uh, just to finish off, a lot of people are abandoning Twitter at this moment because of you know the new ownership and all. I think that's a very bad idea. I feel like it's something worth fighting for. And again, for the same reason that we cannot cede this grounds to people who are uh, you know who, who are only going to use it for the worst possible motivations. I'll be very brief since we have questions coming in. So I would just want to emphasize that we need more uh, cross-disciplinary collaboration. Uh, we definitely need more computer scientists like, who, who know uh, how to analyze uh, the situation uh, from a technological uh, perspective. For example, we may know a little bit about text images now, but for video, we know much less, right? And analyzing large, huge amount of uh, video is, is, is much more difficult. And now we have AI generated uh, text, uh, image, and videos. So that's a whole new level. 
So uh, I think we, we do need uh, people from uh, computer science background, from business, from uh, development background, from uh, media studies, from all these backgrounds to better collaborate. Okay, I have three questions and all of the people have told me they prefer for me to read it out. So we have shy questioners today. Uh, the question from Sheldon Rampton, who is a software engineer and a recovering journalist from the US, he says a variety of social media have risen and fallen, each with different rules of engagement, Twitter, Facebook, Wikipedia, Silk Road, MySpace. I think the rules of each platform influence the type of behavior that happens there. Twitter, for example, is privately owned, easily facilitates anonymity and enforces extreme concision in the length of conciseness and the, the length of messages that people are allowed to post. Um, and the question at the end of this is, um, has anyone given thoughts about how we might classify and categorize social media so that we can decide what we want to promote and what we want to discourage? So that's a question about kind of, can we classify different platforms as having different kinds of rules and different kinds of effects? Uh, we also have a question from Avina, who is an LSE MSc behavioral science student from Greece. She had a question from Kiching. Uh, for Kaching, which is, um, you spoke about the possibility of controlled connections on social media. Who do you think should be responsible for deciding on how we control these connections? That might be a question other people also want to answer. And finally, we have a question from Aloma, who is also an LSE student from Barcelona. Um, and she said, a topic we've not discussed is concerning those deciding what will go live and what will be censored, namely content moderators working for social media company in developing countries such as the Philippines. So would it be possible to discuss the negative externalities of this new type of work? And what, what is the role of, regu of legislatures regulating it? So I don't know if, um, if, if anybody wants to answer those three questions. Uh, Nanjale and Amil. Let's go for Amil first and then Nanjale. So I, maybe I could draw together, I think there's a thread in all of those, which is about regulation and regulation of content uh, and who does the regulating. Um, on on Sheldon's question, actually, I think the question of who's the we um, is, is up for grabs. Um, so uh, can I maybe take a stab at that and say the if if the we in that sense in in in, uh, in Sheldon's question is regulators possibly or the pu pu public at large through public opinion, um, I would say that uh, perhaps a slightly um, uh, unpopular view is that the having looked at the rules and regulations of social media platforms at length, the policies that they have, I've generally found them to be pretty extensive. The problem is in their enforcement very often like if we for sure they're not ideal but if we if they were enforced uh to 100 percent of what they say we wouldn't have a problem as quite as bad as it is now um that would be a, a very good start um so i would say that um they would their pushback you know when they get called in front of parliament and congress is that they just don't have enough um, resources, um, whereas uh, whistleblowers would say, well, they're not really that interested. And of course, they're a private organization. So it's kind of, we don't really know what's happening in the background. Maybe there's some political links, et cetera. Some things get closed down, some things don't. 
some people are you know left alone and others are not and it's not always clear what happens so i think more focus on the uh, application of those rules would be a really useful some transparency um self regulation is not working that well i think pretty much that's a consensus around that but i think that what we need to ask then is uh, the, the the sort of smoke screen often put up by uh, people, the platforms of people working for the platforms is that it's we, we don't want to get stuck into this question of what is right and what is wrong, who's truth. And I think that some of that is, is, is common in these questions, like it comes down to that knotty issue of what is right and what is wrong. A lot of the most agrarian examples of violations are they do tackle in the in, in those in their policies around hateful content, um, around incitement to violence, etc. So some we don't have to constantly have that argument until it would be better to I would say to deal with the issues that are already outlined. So that would be um, where I would say that we really need to, uh, to to focus on to begin with. And the other is. The second point would be um, manipulation, online manipulation. Um, they the most uh, direct, decisive language around what is allowed and what is not allowed is uh, technical manipulation online. And just to end with an example, I remember Katie Hopkins before she was thrown off Twitter. Uh, at one point, she had um, a whole bunch of the bots removed that promote her content. And if you saw her rankings in as in UK popular personalities on Twitter, she she fell like 50 places or something literally overnight and she turned around and said oh i'm being uh, uh I, i'm being censored and there was no censoring it wasn't a content moderation issue at all it was a manipulation issue thank you very much Anil. um Nandala. i want to take two questions um one is on the content moderation question and i i think there's two levels to this. Um, in fact, there's two levels to both the questions that I'm going to answer. There's two levels to this question about content moderation. One is, and I, I make this point really in all of the analysis that I've been doing about this Twitter acquisition, there is a distinction between the social networking sites as private capital, as businesses, and how they behave as platforms. Mm -hmm. As platforms, um, content moderation is crucial to keeping people safe. There has to be, you know, in my previous answer, I talked a lot about how there's huge swaths of these networking sites that are dedicated to really terrible criminal activity um, that causes harm and can inadvertently cause harm, but also directly causes harm to young people, to all kinds of people. And content moderation is crucial to being a buffer between um, that negative content and ordinary users. It's the least, the very, very, very least baseline responsibilities that the people who are making money off of these platforms owe to their users. But the second level of it is a, the broader social human uh, implication. I think this is what the question is getting at. And the, I think for me, what I connected to is that this is just mercantile uh, accumulation and in the worst way possible because it requires an exploited underclass in order to make the social experience of the rest of us possible. Content mm -hmm. moderators experience tremendous harm. They are exposed to the worst of human behavior for 12, 14 hours a day for $2 a day. They experience severe mental health ramifications for the work that they do. Um, and yet, as I said in the previous part, their work is necessary to keeping us safe online. And I think from a philosophical perspective, where I always come back to is what 
is that ties into the next question is any of this necessary like are we supposed to be speaking to each other on these i use social networking sites i enjoy using social networking sites they've been very good for me professionally and personally is it good for the human species for us to be this hyper connected all the time i mm -hmm. think that's an important question i think when you especially you look at the experience of content moderators, I think it's an urgent philosophical question that, you know, uh, we talked about we need to work with uh, computer scientists. I think we also need to work with ethicists and moral philosophers and humanists and people to really think deeply about what are the human ramifications of the system that we're building because there's people are paying, there's externalities. Economists talk about externalities. There's externalities to this level of, of connection. And we haven't, just because we can't attach a monetary price to it, doesn't mean that they're not there. Just because the social networking sites have figured out a way of doing it cheap, doesn't mean that there isn't a cost to it. It just means that they're only paying part of the cost. And the second question is the one about um, Brave New World and should we not be connected, et cetera. Look, I think, again, there's two levels to this. The first level is we are discussing this as researchers, as practitioners, because it is part of the human, the contemporary human experience. And we have to understand the contemporary human experience in order to respond to it. And the reality is that for many people around the world, social networking sites have made social, economic, and political transformations possible that would not have otherwise been possible. When we talk about protest, protest movements, we talk about the Arab Spring, we talk about my dress, my choice, we talk about what's happening in Iran and all of these things. When you are in an authoritarian system where there is state capture of press, there is state capture of the public sphere, what social networking sites have done is that they've allowed people to circumvent power. And as I said at the beginning, to set the agenda for political discourse, to demand accountability and to claim that space. That cannot be negated just because um, on the other side of the world, there is this escapism and there is this, um, uh, you know, dependency, social dependency that the social networking sites have created. Just because it's digital doesn't mean that it's not real. It's real. It's part of how we live. The other side of it, though, is that, again, there are externalities to this. And we are only now starting to grapple with these. I think one of the things that came out of the Hagen testimony at Brussels and has been, I think, a big part of the UK's regulatory push in the last couple of months is the impact, for example, that uh, Instagram is having on young women's perception of self. That, you know, a 14 year old girl committing suicide because of the bullying that she experiences online. That they are things, there are nudges that are happening to our perceptions of self that hyperconnectivity is making possible that we do actually have to sit with. And these are not just things that are happening in rich countries. These are things that are happening all over the world. Um, so I think recognizing that complexity, we recognize it and we sit in it as researchers and we sit in it at people who are immersed in these spaces and we try and find ways of making sense of it. But we cannot say, you know, it's not real because it's only happening on your computer, it's only happening on your phone. They are knock-on effects. And what we're trying to do is to create a research environment and a policy environment in which we are uh, cognizant of these knock-on effects. And we are trying to push people towards being more accountable for them and towards being more responsive to them. Thank you, Nanjal. You also contained a lot of things there for researchers and, and students who want to look at the kind of the on-stage and the off-stage effects of these things and the way that the, you know, it's it's like the oil economy, right? That the the 
carbon-based democracies in, in high-income countries have this whole political economy that sustains them in other parts of the world. And sort of thinking about these connections globally is really important. Um, we only have 10 more minutes and other questions have come in. So uh, I want to quickly go to Kachen because one of the questions was specifically mm -hmm. for him. But then, Idris, if you could look at the other questions in the chat. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah actually, I've been looking at the other questions. So actually, my answer to a question about like how, how we really control these connections is actually related to the latest question uh, by, by, by Drew. Because I, I do think that the starting point is users ourselves. It's the user agency that you uh, mentioned in, in your question. So that's also from uh, my personal experience. So uh, I was once subject to a huge wave of uh, pro-government trolls attack and harassment on a Chinese social media platform. And uh, during that time, I asked for help from uh, the platform company. I asked them to shut down the comment section of my posts and they refused to do so. They simply say that they don't have this function for me to shut down all the comments so that I, the only option for me is to delete all my posts so the comments will disappear. I think this is crazy, it's ridiculous. So I think the starting point is users of self. We should give more control, more, more, more uh, power to users in terms, in terms of privacy settings, message settings, blocking unwanted messages like that. But I understand why platforms are not willing to do so, or they are not incentivized to, to do that. Because like the oil uh, economy you just mentioned, so platforms data is a new oil, right? So they are incentivized to collect as many data as possible. So uh, they will not lose any opportunity to collect more data. So, uh, so it's bad for their business. So uh, I, I do think that then we cannot really rely on the so-called self-regulation of the platforms. We have to, uh, bringing regulation. Uh, usually, business models which are bad for the for the society, unfortunately, they will be good for scaling up, for making a lot of profit. So that's when uh, regulation should come in. But regulation is not only a top-down thing, because I do think that, for example, when we talk about user agency, user awareness, we do need a kind of campaign for public awareness of these issues, right? Without that, even if the platforms are providing these functions. They, the users do not have enough awareness or literacy uh, to, 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 to use that functions to protect them, for, to protect themselves, right? So we do, in, in this term, we do need NGOs, we do need educators, we do need a civil society to have these campaigns, not only to raise awareness, but also to uh, put more pressure on the platform companies. So that's how I, I combine these two questions and give my uh, opinion on that. Okay, I just want to give an opportunity to Idris and also to Amil to sort of reflect on the questions and also some of the other answers to the questions. At this point, I've lost kind of specific questions because there had been such good discussions. I can quickly respond to some of these last questions. Julia Dukarczyk and uh, uh, Afifa Sultan asked a question which are kind of related, which is about uh, uh, you know how news spreads over social media and whether there's a personal responsibility as well in what we consume. 
I think we certainly have uh, for the future a social responsibility in preparing people for that. This is life now that, you know, these things are going to be part of how we exist. So the question is that how we adopt to them. And one of the things will be that how we consume media, how we process information. And once we know, if everybody has that understanding that we are manipulated through our reflexive responses, so a way of approaching social media in a bit more deliberative way that when we get something something which may accord with our prejudices that we may be inclined to share it immediately but that if we make it a kind of a you know we encourage people from a young age that whenever they see um, something that uh, seems to be something that right, readily agrees with their prejudices that just to take the time that here are a few steps that you can just to ensure for your own protection, for just to prevent yourself from being manipulated, that there are a few things you can do. So yes, there should be in the future that personal and social responsibility should be something that we have to pick up on a on a larger level. And as in, as for you know what kind of news uh, spreads on social media, once again, you know we can always check the credibility of the sources and we can again do the test in terms of uh, you know if it's just some random blog with nobody's name attached to it. So there's no reason to believe that they people may be, I mean, there are circumstances in which random blogs with anonymous people have been telling the truth. So we shouldn't exclude that. But the thing is that there should be a few, um, everybody should have that, um, you know, some uh, few tests built into that, like how to verify the credibility of sources and how to ensure that that is truth by checking um, multiple sources. If we can build that into, again, our uh, literacy programs, that is going to be really useful. But the last thing about uh, the Brave New World, um, I, I think that that is not a new problem. I mean, you know, going back to Neil Postman, that we have been dealing with that thing, that we do have, we are flooded with entertainment. And um, same thing even now more so. There was a very interesting story, which I would encourage everybody to uh, follow recently on 60 Minutes, which was about how TikTok in the US uh, behaves very differently TikTok in China, that in China it's much more closely regulated. So it's content in terms of like how much children are able to be influenced by the dance videos and everything else is considerably circumscribed. So I think that again, that could be, that should be another reason to spark a debate about, you know, that whether is that a personal responsibility, is a platform responsibility, or is this something that the state can uh, ensure that how much of the, these platforms, uh, especially for people of a younger age, that uh, you know, what kind of content is served to them? Yeah, you bring in a kind of potential topic there of looking at varieties of kind of digital capitalism across different countries and sort of the, the ways in which the kind of political ideologies and politics of different countries shape the way that these things are regulated. And then also paying attention to what Nanjala said about the kind of global hierarchies, the degree to which the ability to control and regulate these things is not shared equally among different countries. Okay, I just want to bring in Amil, and then one um, a person in the audience has asked if everybody could share, the, the panelists could share some social media links where they can follow them going forward. So I might ask you all to talk about your Twitter handles at the end, just to, to give people an idea of where they can follow your work. But Amil. Thank you. Thanks very much, Laura. So I would say I've just thought to to zoom out and think about all the questions and and and, and the responses that we've discussed on the panel, um, uh, and to encapsulate, I think the one issue that kept coming up that that we haven't so far addressed at the moment 
Um, the issue was around, I think, how social media companies could be differently owned. So sort of we touched on it in different ways. So is the private model uh, part of the problem that it is, you know, and I mentioned that, that, you know, it's, it's, in, it's, it's general, it's there to create profit. Um, so then that, of course, brings in the issue of whether or not public ownership is, is a better solution. And potentially you can see the logic in there. I would say from experience uh, of dealing with social media companies and, uh, and government uh, and seeing government try and deal with um, social media, that in general, I would say at least the governments that I've dealt with in the past, they are basically way too slow to deal with. Social media moves so fast, technology moves so fast, the way the dynamics move. And unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, Mark Zuckerberg saying, uh, break things and you know think about it later is it has become encapsulated in the sort of mentality of the social media platforms, the companies and the you know, so social media tech world. And government doesn't work like that at all, especially, you know, governments with parliaments and regulations and whatever. So I, in principle, I would like to see, yeah, I'd love to see a publicly owned. Uh, so I know the BBC has sort of thought about these kind of things. In practice, I think it's not really likely to happen. So I would say, um, if, if I was being asked, you know, to, to advise or something, a political actor, I would say, let's think about broad but targeted legislation that deals with the infrastructure uh, and deals with um, the critical principle. So like a principle being that social media platforms aren't responsible legally for the platform because they're not really um, the publishers. They're just, you know, a board that, you know, other people put their uh, views on and therefore those other people should be held responsible, not them. So do we want to let them get away with that? That's a critical issue. Like if 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 legis if the EU or the US or somebody says no, actually Facebook, you are legally responsible. That's going to have a massive impact. So I think legislation that carefully delib deliberates on these issues gets to the point, issues lots and lots of you know um, white papers along the way and thinks about it, and then comes out with a with a with a with a ruling. That makes sense. It would take time, but it would be worth it. And that ruling would probably be able to stand for a while and not have to constantly change. Um, so I would say, yes, I think we're stuck with the private sector ownership model. I've seen other models come and go and not really gain traction. Um, but I would like to see legislation really deal with the core issues. And I think it can do that. Okay, thank you all very, very, very much. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us. And I think it's been a really interesting conversation. And hopefully it's got people thinking about these issues in a more critical way, and a more kind of nuanced way across uh, context. Just want to close by asking you if you could all briefly say where can people follow you? So Amir, where can people follow you? Uh, so my, I'm just typing it in now. My uh, own Twitter handle is London at London Stani, and our work on where we post quite a bit of uh, research and and stuff that we're interested in is Valent underscore projects. Okay, and Kachay. I have already uh, input it in the chat box. Now I have my Twitter. So it's Bang G P C. K C. K C. Okay, and Nanjala. They can read your book. <laughs> yeah, I'm a book. They're in the bookstores. I I can't remember how to type out the Mastodon. <laughs> it's really, it's a little bit of a uh, but I will figure it out and I'll put it I'll put it in the chat. I'm I'm one of the the pivoters. Okay, I'm too lazy currently to transition. <laughs> 
I, well, well, we can we can talk about it later. But I I I think people should really be very conscious of the fact that yeah things are changing. And Idris is at uh, I'm underscore yeah. Paul and put it in the chat. So thank you everybody. Thank you for coming and thank you to all of our panelists. Um, yeah, and we're very happy that you came and talked to us. And hopefully next year we might be able to welcome guys in person to LSE as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Autumn 2022 Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Search YouTube for International Development LSE. Find out about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website. And find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates. <laughs>